You're listening to the Violence Design Lab podcast, episode 5. Welcome to the Violence Design Lab podcast, putting the science in theatrical violence. Now here's your host, David Bearford. Hello there, welcome back to the lab. I'm David Bearford, and today I want to talk about some of my favorite people in the world, actors. That's right, actors. America has a weird view of actors, in my opinion. We judge them on their looks, then we call them vain. We say actors in Hollywood get paid way too much, then we tell struggling actors to get a real job. We say anyone can act, but then we get sweaty palms at the idea of speaking in front of a crowd of 20 people. The actors get labeled emotional, airheaded, clueless, and sure, a few of them are, just like the rest of us. But actors are amazing people, and their craft is one of the most difficult to do well because it's so subjective. It's not like engineering with numbers you can plug into a formula or working with wood that you can saw and fit to length. It's, it's literally all based in interpersonal relationships, emotion, and empathy, some of the hardest things to quantify in the world. Now, because some of you are approaching design without starting out as an actor yourself, I want to give you five tips for working with actors to smooth out the process and make it less stressful for them and for you. But if you're listening to this episode while you're in your car or working out or on the train or whatever, don't worry. I put all the tips we're going to talk about in a handy cheat sheet. Print it out, stick it in your script binder, and glance at it before your next rehearsal. You can get it by going to the website at violencedesignlab.com and clicking the Resources tab on the menu bar. It'll ask for your email address, and then you'll get access to all the special content and freebies I talk about on the podcast. So let's dive right in. Number one, respect the actor's craft. Actors have so much going on in a performance. People often ask them, how do you memorize all those lines? But honestly, the memorization is perhaps the least of their problems. And everybody in the theater hierarchy has instructions for the actor. The the director gives them notes on nearly everything, down to where they have to stand at a specific time and, and at what angle to the audience. The customer, you know, gives them things to wear that are often uncomfortable or strange. Lighting designer wants them to find the hot spot of the lights that are glaring in their face. Props people give them lukewarm tea and ask them to pretend it's whiskey. And the sound designer wants them to wait until a specific part of the music to start the scene. And... Dozens, if not hundreds of people in the audience, they're sitting a couple of yards away, and they expect that the actors will completely ignore them, but yet speak loudly and clearly enough to be heard, without amplification often, in the back row. And then everyone tells them, well, be natural. And and who looks bad in a live performance if something goes wrong? Yeah, that's right, the actor. They're the ones with everything on the line. Now, if you've never had personal experience with acting, I really encourage you to take a class. Even if you've done things like live martial arts demonstrations before, things are different when you're portraying a character and speaking memorized lines. Now, you may never get up on stage for a full production if that's not your thing, but it's good to have the experience of at least getting up in front of a group of people and performing a scene for a class. I think you'll start to respect the craft of acting more than you have ever before. Now, I mention all of this to remind you that the violence in a show, however important, is a very small part of the actor's job. I consider a a long stage combat fight, for example, to be anything over 30 seconds. I mean, you can actually fit a lot of choreography into that time. Now, for many shows with single punches or a simple struggle or a fall, 
the actual stage time of the violence might only be five seconds or less. Yet, of course, for violence designers, those few seconds are literally our raison d'etre, and they're the why we're there, and they can make or break the scene that they're placed in. But we have to understand our place in the general scheme of the production, because everyone wants the fights to be great, the actors, the designers, the directors. Designers, we want hours and hours of rehearsal time to get them just right, but there's a finite number of hours when actors are available for rehearsal. That means the director also needs the actors to work on, you know, the other two and a half hours of the show and not just our 30 seconds. True story, I was recently designing the battle scene for a youth theater production of Narnia, which involved 30 kids and teens swinging weapons at each other. They wanted a three-minute battle sequence. And now, they were on a very limited rehearsal schedule, and they had initially given what I thought was honestly an unreasonably short time to teach the technique, to give the choreography, and practice it up to a performance level. Well, I mentioned this to my wife, just how much time the how much fight rehearsal time that the production really would realistically require, and she flipped out, and she started listing all the reasons that was completely impossible based on everything else that had to get rehearsed. You see, unlike 99% of the shows I design, my wife was directing this one, and I made the mistake of letting her see just how much time the designer really wants without my normal diplomatic negotiation that I normally do with other directors. The point is, we have to remember that we're already given priority in the rehearsal time, basically on the rehearsal time to the stage time ratio, and we need to be careful about asking for hours and hours more than they can give. Sometimes we have to adjust our choreography to match the available time rather than the reverse. But this all comes back to respect. Give the actors great choreography, yes, but be respectful of everything else they need to rehearse as well. Number two, assume that you're going to be working with untrained fighters. Now, it's often frustrating because we get actors who haven't spent hours and hours doing fight training. It would just help so much if we could just skip over most of the technique lessons and go right to choreography. But look at fight training from the actor's perspective. They might get cast in a role every couple of years that might have 20 seconds of fight time. I mean, you know, how dare they focus their time and their tuition dollars taking courses that hone the acting and the voice skills they use on every single job. Now, actors who do have training or fighting experience will be quick to tell you their credentials, right? As soon as you walk in, oh, I did stage combat in this show, or I trained and took that class. First of all, try hard not to dismiss that experience out of hand. Don't say, well, that system or, or that teacher, they're crazy slash unsafe slash complete crap. <laughs> Saying things like that won't change the actor's background at all, and it'll either make them feel stupid for wasting their time before, or it'll make them defensive about their prior training, none of which helps you. So focus on the positives of what you're about to teach them. Things like, well, for this show, we're going to make this fight super historical, and you're going to learn some actual techniques from the 14th century. Or, hey, you know, this show is going to be so much fun. Here we're going full-on Hollywood swashbuckler. You're going to look like Errol Flynn. 
Now, the corollary to the, you know, don't diss their training tip is also don't rely on any credentials on their resume. I once worked with an actor who had a training certificate from Terry Hands, who at the time was the resident fight guy for the Royal Shakespeare Company. In other words, this, this actor had better training credentials than I did, and I was planning on making him a feature fighter, possibly my fight captain, and then I saw him work. The guy was a terrible fighter. I mean, awful form, deadpan expressions, just not good. So, although sometimes I am pleasantly surprised by actors, I find it safer to assume that my fighters will essentially be untrained going into a new show. And that's especially true if you're staging historical styles. I mean, even if the actor has had some stage combat experience, I can practically guarantee that their training won't have been in your historical discipline. You know, what do you mean you didn't study a hundred hours of Shamshir on the off chance you got cast in Aladdin someday, right? Just go in assuming the actor is untrained. You might be pleasantly surprised. A lot of actors learn very quickly, and many of them are very used to making their bodies do whatever is required of them. But that does mean, however, that your choreography needs to be designed with this in mind. The more complex or technical the move, the more time will be required to rehearse it to a level of reliability to ensure the safety and success in performance. There's a quote attributed to a Navy SEAL that goes, You never rise to the occasion, you sink to the level of their training. Now, please don't hear me saying, Well, don't choreograph anything technical or challenging. No, of course not. As I said before, actors are amazing people, and they will likely pick things up very fast to a certain point. Just make sure you balance your complex technique, which needs more time, with the available rehearsal hours that you have. Now, I'm going to take a little side trip here and tell you about how working with untrained actors is actually a benefit for you. When I first started designing fights, I had been training for about a little under two years. So, you know, of course I knew everything there was to know, right? Well, I I had marched my little molehill of knowledge into rehearsal, and I started sharing it with my fighters, and one actor seemed to get it right away. But the other guy said, I don't understand. Well, I, I repeated the explanation of the technique for him just the way I'd been taught. And he tried again, he failed again, and he said, Can you explain it a different way? You see, not everyone learns the same way, or the same way you learn. And explanations and and analogies that that work for one person, they don't work on another person. A teacher friend of mine explains students like like a parking lot full of cars. They'll, They'll all start with a turn of a key. It's just a matter of finding the right key for that particular car. So, what's the benefit of me working with actors who aren't as trained as I am? Well, I have to keep making keys. I have to keep analyzing my own technique, perfecting my own form, figuring out what's going on underneath the moves. You never learn as fast as when you're teaching. And when you design for the theater, you are constantly teaching new students. And your key ring starts to get pretty big. It only helps you when you teach in your regular club, and it'll only improve your own skills. The third tip for working with actors is reduce jargon as much as possible. 
Now, every specialty in the world loves its jargon. Just sit in on a tech meeting about server migration or, or listen to military personnel talk about pay grades. It's like a different language. And these specialized words help those who know them talk very accurately and quickly, but they're like a, a members-only club for people who don't know them. I mean, it's fun to show off the fancy words we know, don't get me wrong, but if I keep calling that cut a fendente, the next designer is going to call it an overhaul, and the person after that will call it a cut five, and which term is the actor supposed to use? Now, the minute, of course, I mention those terms, your brain's going, well, an overhaul is not quite the same as a fendente, because in the gym and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I, I know how we think, I get it. Take a breath. Set down the codex and back away slowly. Now, if that actor comes into your studio to train, well, by all means, fill her up with all the jargon. But when you're in her house, think about what she needs to know. The name of the move is not nearly as important as the concept and the physical technique. I mean, there's a good reason that modern stage combat assigns numbers to parry positions. They're easier to remember. And unless you think that I'm just throwing out history in favor of coddling actors, take a look at 19th century British cutlass training manuals. They numbered cuts and parries too, because it wasn't important at all that your average Jack Tar had a fancy name for his cut, but it was highly important that he knew six different ways to chop the other guy into chum. So what I don't have for you is a standardized system of replacing your Italian, Spanish, French, or German terminology with a system of letters or numbers. In fact, I argue that the, quote, standard Perry uh, nomenclature can actually decrease our choreographic creativity. If we allow those numbers to limit us to the eight or nine specific standard Perrys that they represent. I mean, what to call a specific move, that's up to you. But I have a suggestion that relates to tip number four. Number four, help the actor tell the story. See, what does matter to the actor is telling the story of the scene. As I've said over and over, and I'll keep saying until I die, on stage, there's no such thing as a sword fight. A tournament bout at long point, yeah, that's a sword fight. On stage, though, swords are just tools. They're just the means by which one character is trying to forcibly work their will on another. It's not about the technique or how closely the form matches the third scholar of whatever. It's about the story of one character trying to kill the other one. And that concept, which holds true for the whole sequence of choreography, it's equally true for each individual move. The best way to tell an actor what to call a move is to give them a win picture. What I mean is, describe the image of what happens if the move succeeds in the character's world. Telling a actor that this cut is called a mandrito fendente, that's a cool tidbit of information, but it doesn't do anything. It just sits there. It's useful for a bizarre trivia game, but it's less useful to him than explaining cut down at a slight angle, planning to hit him right between the bottom of the helmet and the top of his neck armor. Blade will go in through his neck and ideally come out about the right knee somewhere. See, an actor can, they can see that in their mind. They can do that. Now, obviously, the actor realizes they're not going to actively or really cleave the other performer in two, and chances are the move is choreographed to be unsuccessful anyway, blocked or dodged. But even if the other character has no counter to the move, the attacking actor will still know they're not going to really bash their friend in the neck. They know they're going to do the illusion technique that makes it look like they struck down their enemy, but doesn't really hurt anyone. I mean, actors aren't crazy, really. 
But if you only give actors choreographic moves without telling them the story of what they're trying to do, it's likely that's exactly what you're going to get. Actors doing a series of your turn, my turn moves with no idea of why they're doing them. And that's where story problems come up. It'll look like people whacking sticks together, I promise you. So walk the actors through the story of the fight. Explain what the character is planning to do, then how the opponent completely disrupts that plan. Teach them the fights with the acting moments right from the start. Don't wait until after you've given them all the physical technique. Help them tell the story from the get-go. And number five is a pro tip that's sort of a uh, corollary to that. Number five, let the actors help you tell your story. One common gripe I hear from designers, especially people who like advanced sword work, is that the audience can't appreciate all the nuances and tactics that go into a realistic sword fight. You know, all the pressures, changes of engagement, open and closed line, decisions in the bind, and the, the 50 other tactics that, that are going on in the space of a few seconds. I mean, there's, there's just no way to show that in the choreography. And you know what? The people who say this, they're right. I mean, this is why America doesn't give a rip about Olympic fencing. They have no idea what they're looking at, and they get bored in about three touches and switch it back over to gymnastics. But I want you to take a play, any play you want. Grab a scene out of the middle and look at the lines, just the lines for that scene. You know what you don't see in there? All the events that have happened to make that scene relevant, all the character background work, their overt or, or hidden relationships with each other and the other characters, and all the influence of all the things that have been said and done in the play so far, and everything that's implied to have happened before the play even started. You won't find much of that in the lines on the paper. But in the play, in the performance, all that stuff is there. It may not be said directly, but it has a drastic, dare I say dramatic, uh, effect on the story and the character relationships. We see it. We, we even see it if we don't fully understand what's going on with the character. You, you know those scenes where you can tell one person is acting weird and, and it isn't revealed why until later? Or, or you do know the backstory and it gives a much deeper second level meaning to whatever they're saying on the surface? Well, what you're noticing and what the actors are consciously including in their performance is called subtext. It's the actor's stock in trade, and it's your best friend in designing amazing choreography. You see, just like when you watch a scene, and you, you see something happen, but you don't know the backstory, it, it's actually not crucial that your audience understands all the subtle tactics and martial logic happening in a fight sequence they can still understand the story of the relationship between the characters. But it's absolutely critical that the actors do understand the tactics and what they're trying to do. But to teach it to them, you need to talk the actor's language. Let me give you an example. Suppose Charles and Joan are in a longsword fight. So maybe Charles strikes sort of a tentative sinestra fendente. Joan responds with posta de fenestra on the right, but Charles is weak in the crossing. And then, so, so Joan dominates the center line, tries a thrust. Charles avoids it with a demi-volt in the cover. Then he passes and cuts in a strong mandrito fendente. She steps off line, covers it with posta breve, but she feels the strong pressure from Charles, allows the strike to blow through a yielding parry, and returns a copal de villani to hit Charles. Now, first of all, if that description made any sense, it means you've studied the longsword techniques of Fiori. 
If it was unclear, it's another great example of how jargon can totally obscure things. In plain English, for those who didn't take Fiori, uh, Charles does a diagonal cut from up left to down right at Joan. She parries in a high guard on the right, then notices Charles uh, is not pushing through, and she uses the open center line as an opening for a thrust. Charles steps offline to avoid the attack, and he keeps his blade interposed for extra insurance. Then he cuts again more strongly, this time from up right to down left. Joan parries, but lets the strike move through her parry, spinning her blade behind Charles to strike him in return. Now, that description is three moves, and there's a lot going on. I mean, fights are, I think, the most story-dense moments in a play. But even that second description, well much more clear, I suppose, is still not the story of the fight. Just like that scene you pulled from the middle of the play, that choreography I gave you, that's just the lines. The subtext is the story, and that's what the actors play. So here's one possible story interpretation of those three moves from the perspective of the actor playing Charles. Okay, Joan has challenged Charles to prove she can fight well enough to join the army. Charles, doubting that Joan has any skill, makes a basic, easily read first attack to see how she responds. Well, she blocks it in good form, then immediately takes advantage of his courtesy with a quick attack. Now, his long fighting experience kicks in and he manages to avoid the thrust, but his surprise causes the people looking on to chuckle at him. Well, now the gloves are off, so he's embarrassed and enraged, and he brings down a hard cut planet to smash through whatever block she throws up. But somehow she avoids that blow and whips a cut to his helm before he's even sure how it happened. You see, the choreography hasn't changed, but actors can play that story. I mean, of course, teach them the technique behind the story, but be aware that the audience, they won't be able to pick up a story from the technique alone. This is why competition fencing matches appear boring to most people, but they're exciting to fencers, because fencers can pull the story from the technique when the audiences can't. But actors are specialists at communicating story. Let them help you. Teach them the technique and clue them when they're close to winning or they're desperately trying to avoid death, and they'll give you a fight that appeals to both fighters that are in the know and the clueless audiences alike. Now, at the top of the episode, I mentioned a cheat sheet of this episode's information that I've compiled into a handy PDF for your reference. To get it, simply visit the website at violencedesignlab.com and click the resources link on the menu bar. That'll take you to a page where you can see all the freebies that I mentioned in my episodes, and you can sign up to get free access to all the bonus content. Well, that's it for this episode. If you find this information useful, please take a moment to review the podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast site and give me a five-star rating if you can. That moves my feed up the rankings and it helps other people to find me. You can also uh, find the lab on Facebook at facebook.com slash violence lab and you can leave questions or leave comments for me there or on the website by clicking the Ask David link on the menu bar. You can subscribe for regular email notifications of blog posts, podcast episodes, and new contents by becoming a lab rat or by clicking the lab reports tab in the top right corner of the website. There's also a special HEMA one-question survey on the website, on the front page, just asking you, what is your biggest obstacle to staging HEMA-related fights in the theater? This is for my, specifically, people who do study historical martial arts, but I wanted to put it out there. If this is your first time listening, I'd really appreciate your feedback. But until next time, keep the fights on stage and peace in your life.
David, out. Thanks for listening to the Violence Design Lab podcast. For more tips, tutorials, and downloadable resources, visit us at violencedesignlab.com.